So this morning I want to talk to you about the perfect sandwich. Um, and I put on Facebook, if you're on Facebook, you will have noticed it. I put on Facebook, uh, what is people's favorite sandwich? What do they like to eat? And I found it surprising, the replies I got. Some of the sandwiches I thought to myself, oh, yummy, I would really like to eat that one. Others I thought, that is the most disgusting thing I think I've ever read. Um, so some of the favorites that I thought I would love to eat that right now. One of my friends said they like the equivalent of an all-day breakfast, but slap between farmhouse white crusty bread, loads of butter, and just mushed together and then eaten. Someone said they like brie and bacon in a panini with a little bit of cranberry. Oh, that one I was like, I want that sandwich right now. One of the most disgusting ones, I have to be honest, was um, someone who said they like bacon and banana. Oh, no. I, I literally all day was going, bacon and banana, ooh, gosh. Yeah, that, that would not be one I would eat. Someone else said if they've got a bit of leftover bolognese, they like to slap that in a sandwich. Oh, with a bit of cheese and a little bit of chutney. Oh, to be honest, it was the South Africans who had some of the strangest choices of sandwich. I'm, I'm just putting that out there, all right? Um, my ideal sandwich is... I'm not really about the bread. I like bread and I like decent bread, but I am most interested in the filler. So my ideal sandwich looks a little something like this. My ideal sandwich, you have to eat with a knife and fork because it's spilling out all over the plate. My ideal sandwich is cram-packed full of meat, salads, dressing. It's not really a sandwich, to be honest. It's like a... This one's got chorizo, chicken lettuce, tomato, cucumber. I've done a barbecue mayonnaise. So I mix barbecue and mayonnaise together and just drizzle it over the top. I like it so that when you eat it, it's kind of on your face. You know, it's like everywhere. I like it when you go to a pub and they do an open sandwich. So it's like a slice of bread on the plate and then they just load it with stuff and they give you chips on the side. That's my ideal kind of sandwich, just loads of And what we're going to find out today when we read this story is that is also Mark's ideal kind of sandwich. You see, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, is all about the filling. So I'm going to show you that. If you've got a Bible with you, or you've got your iPhone or your iPad or whatever, turn to Mark 14, 1 to 11. (coughs) If you haven't bought your Bible this morning, it's fine. I'm going to read it to you so you can just listen and absorb it. I, by the way, can cope with a little bit of child type of noise, so don't worry if your child's making a little bit of noise, that's absolutely fine. If it makes you uncomfortable, there's a room out there, you can deal with them, but if not, like, I'm quite happy. I live in a world where I have two boys going, mummy, 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 all the time, and I manage to carry on, so. Mark 14, 1 to 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, The leading priests and teachers of the religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. 
Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. And while he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deeds will be remembered and discussed. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the leading priests to arrange to betray Jesus to them. He was, oh, they were delighted when they heard why he had come, and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. If you read the Gospel of Mark, Mark likes a sandwich. He likes to take two stories... And he likes to put in the middle something that that is quite phenomenal. He likes to sandwich them. He likes to bookend them. So he likes to tell you two things that bookend something. And then in the middle tell you this amazing truth. So this sandwich has got two slices of bread. This, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and Judas Iscariot. So you've got named men who are followers of Jesus, teachers about Jesus, they, they would have been known, they would have been seen, they would have been in the temple, they would have been teaching, they would have been prominent people, they would have been people who knew the law inside out, they, they would have been people who knew a lot about Jesus. And you've got them at the beginning discussing and plotting how to kill Jesus, how to do it quietly, secretly, away from the crowd so that there isn't a riot because all the people who were sick, all the people who were broken, all the people who were damaged were loving Jesus. All the religious people, all the learned people, all the teachers, all the the chief priests, they were hating Jesus. So they didn't want to cause a riot. They wanted to do it in secret. They wanted to do it behind closed doors. They wanted to crucify or kill Jesus. So they're plotting and looking for ways. You see all through the book of Mark, they're, they're looking for ways to trip him up. They're going, what's he saying? What's he doing? What's going on? How can we trap him? How can we basically get rid of him. And then the end of the story, you see Judas, who's obviously been offended by the act that the woman made and Jesus's response to it, walking out of the room and going to betray Jesus. So Judas is named, Judas is known, Judas is one of the 12. Judas has been with Jesus. He's watched him do incredible miracles, teach amazing sermons. He then makes a decision to walk off and betray him. So you've got the chief priests, teachers of the law, and you've got Judas who sandwich the story. They stand at either end of this story. You then have what I'm going to call the filler. You then have the filling. And Mark, like me, he loves the filling. He loves that to be lavish, 
over-the-top, incredible, mind-blowing. He's not really bothered about the bread. He's like, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they get a few lines. Judas, he gets a few lines. This unnamed woman who walks into the room has the chunk of the story. She's the main reason for this chunk of text. Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper. I want us to just press pause there and just think about that for a moment. So this guy had leprosy and has now been restored. I think we can assume that he has probably been healed by Jesus. I think we can assume from the story that he once had leprosy, now does not. And Jesus picks his home to go and eat, his home to spend time in. So straight away you have Jesus choosing the outcast those who were seen as unclean, dirty, those who were seen as downtrodden, those who were outside of the city, he enters this home. I think it's really good for us to remember that these are the kind of people that Jesus comes for. In your own life, when you think, I'm so broken, I'm so messed up, I've so got this wrong, you are exactly the kind of person that Jesus comes for. When you feel like you don't have enough, you haven't got what it takes, you're standing in society's not enough, you don't earn enough, you don't have enough, you, don't, you are exactly the kinds of people that Jesus came for. He came for those who were outcast. He came so that he could heal and restore people back into communities. If you read around the text, Simon is thought to be, now that this isn't written in the book of Mark, but it is otherwhere, other places suggested. So you can read the other Gospels and see this story. It's suggested that, that Simon is possibly Lazarus, Mary and Martha's dad. So you're in the home of Lazarus, Mary, Martha. In the, in the account in John, it actually says this woman is Mary. So we don't know whether that's a different story or it's the same story. But many people who read up on this and are much cleverer than I think that this is. For some reason, Mark doesn't choose to name or identify it because he doesn't see that as the important message here. He names and identifies the chief priest, teacher of the law, and Judas... But he doesn't seem to think it's important to name her. So she is unnamed. She enters the room. I want you to remember, as a rule, women in Jewish society would not have entered rooms unless they were bringing food in. So the only reason for a woman to walk in a room... I mean, some men here might be thinking, I like this. The only reason for a woman in that society to enter a room where men were sitting, reclining at the table, was to bring food, to fill up wine, to clear dishes. That would be the only reason for her to be present in the room. She would have had no other place there, but she enters the room. Mark, if you read the Gospel of Mark, he is reminding us over and over and over again that Jewish etiquette, that Jewish social rules, social conduct do not apply to Jesus. So he is constantly breaking the rules. He is constantly saying, you have this in place, but I step right over it. So he's constantly talking to women, talking to children, touching the unclean. He is constantly breaking social etiquette, social norms, social ways of doing stuff. It should never surprise us as a church if some of our acts make people feel uncomfortable 
I would hazard a guess if we are doing kingdom things, there ought to be a slight uncomfortableness about it. So when we offer an event for free and everyone in middle class land who is used to paying for everything is shuddering and trying to find a donation bucket and trying to work out how to give you something for what you've given me, it should not surprise us. We should not feel ashamed that actually in the kingdom we like to give Just because in middle class land you don't know how to receive, that's not our issue. And that's, we will have to work out what our social things are that we just have to step over and say, I'm sorry, in the kingdom, this is how we do it. This is how we roll in the kingdom of God. We are generous, lavish, and over the top because God is generous, lavish, and over the top with us. And so sometimes you will find yourself in situations where it's very obvious that the people around you find it awkward. I would say that is not the point where we stop. That is not the point where we go, oh, okay, uh, right, let's start charging, let's start making sure we are in keeping with the culture around us. I would say we we need to really be in in keeping with the kingdom culture. And Jesus had no problem making people feel uncomfortable. Not for uncomfortable's sake, but because he was bringing a different rule and a different reign in. She then smashes a jar of expensive perfume in front of everyone over Jesus. What we're to understand from this is it was lard or a very expensive perfume oil. The, the smell would have literally filled the room. You know, if you walk past a lush shop and literally the smell, I find the smell quite frankly quite repellent. I have to kind of like recoil and walk a little bit wider because it is literally overwhelming. Overwhelming with a synthetic smell, this would have been overwhelming with a very natural, beautiful smell that made you feel a bit heady, a bit dizzy, a bit like, whoa, just beautiful. We're told that it was more than 300 denarius, which one denarius is about a day's wages at the time. So just think, if you earn, just think about it for a moment, a day's wages, 300 denarius. Basically, she broke the equivalent of a year's salary. Think to yourself right now, if you earn, what do you earn in a year? So think about it. I'm not going to ask you to shout it out, but what do you earn in a year? If you don't own and you're part of a family unit that earns, what does your family unit earn in a year? What is in your savings account? What what is there that you think, that's a big chunk of money. She broke and spilt out the equivalent of a year's wages. Let's say £40,000 worth of oil perfume spilled out. What we know is that she was a woman, so it is highly unlikely that was her own jar of perfume because most of them did not earn at that, in that culture and in that, in that time. So it is highly likely what she broke on him was a family heirloom that got passed down from one generation to the next and was kept in your home. What is highly likely is she took Simon, her dad's jar of expensive perfume and she broke it on Jesus. You have no account where Simon gets up and says, what have you done? He obviously sits there 
and she spills the whole out. She breaks the jar, I think, because she doesn't want anyone scraping it up, putting it back. She doesn't want anyone scrabbling around, grabbing for it and making sure they could save a little bit. She is saying, he is worth the whole lot. I will pour the whole lot out of him. I'll break the jar that it came in and I do not want it going back. She knows that he's worth it all. She knows that who he is is worth way more than a year's wages. He's worth everything. She doesn't know that she's doing this, but she also anoints his body ready for sacrifice. I just want to do a quick aside to the women in the room. So I think that the Gospel of Mark has many points where he just pulls out women and shows what real biblical women can look like. This is one example. If you're a woman sitting in this room, there is something on you to spill out in extravagant ways. You will generally, and I say generally, be the one who is talking the people around you to be more generous than they are. You will generally be the one saying, let's spend this, let's give this, let's invest in this. You will generally be the one who's saying, let's give more time. It is part of your role as a woman to spill out. It is part of your role to be extravagant, over the top. This is not an excuse for you to go out spending because Melanie said you're to be extravagant. So if you're sitting there going, as soon as I get home, I'm on the internet and I am going to shop, shop, shop. That's not what I'm saying. She understood that she had been forgiven much, set free from much, and she knew how to spill it out. She also got very comfortable with the fact that not everybody would understand that. Not everybody would get why she broke that out. So if you're a woman in the room, read this story and think to yourself, I have been forgiven much, I am loved much, I have much to spill out, much to give. One of, I think one of the curses of being a woman is that you can often feel like everyone's better than me, everyone else has got something to give. And I think that's a lie. I think... We each have stuff to give. As women, I think we have a lot to spill out. And so I just want to encourage you, women in the room, to be those that spill out. And don't worry too much about what the people around you think. Don't worry too much about their stares or their comments or their lack of understanding. Do the things that Jesus has asked you to do and spill it out. He gives dignity and value to women in a society that did not. And it's worth us remembering that. He doesn't overstate it. I'm not suggesting that we have a team of feminists rise up from amongst us. I'm suggesting that we rise up and take our places next door to the guys that God has put us alongside, either as husbands, leaders, or whatever, that we rise up and and be the people we're supposed to be. Jesus' response to all this is so interesting. I, I, just, I don't know about you, I find Jesus' response to loads of stuff so interesting. I love like, things like where he just writes in the sand, you know, while they're all shouting, he just takes time to have a little write. I love that when the disciples are freaking out about the kids running around, he says, no, 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 let them come, let them come to me. And they're all freaking out and he he just does stuff that you think, I love when he sees the woman at the well, he just sits down and talks with her. I love that when they want to stone the woman caught in adultery, he's like, okay, which one of you 
has not sinned, you throw the first stone. So he's not, he doesn't get like, he's just not shouting. He's not like dealing with it. He's, he's just calm. He's just like, all right, let them come. Let this play out. I love his response here. He defends her decision. He knows what she did is a preparation for what's to come. Because he knows the disciples are still clueless, but he knows that he will die on a cross. He knows that there probably won't be enough time to prepare his body for burial. He knows that what is going to happen to him will be so unjust that it will probably be forced upon him. He knows that he will be stripped of all his dignity. But what she does, he says, gets me ready for that. She has no clue of the significance of what she's spilt out. He has every clue what she's doing. He says to the disciples, she gets my body ready for burial her. All the guys who've been with him all this time and he's been telling them over and over again, this is what is about to happen. She gets my body ready for burial. She accepts her act and she judges, he judges her heart. He knows what's going on inside of her. And generally, what's going on inside of us spills out even when we don't want it to. So the disciples are really interesting. As soon as she spills out the perfume, they are all awkward, cross, angry. What spills out of the disciples is their hearts. What spills out of them is they think it's an utter waste that she spilled all of that on Jesus. How dare she? They're angry. They're disgusted. They look at her sacrifice and think that it is over-the-top ridiculous. They think the money could have been better spent. They demean her and they demean Jesus. So they say that she is wasteful and they say that he is not worth it. Man, like, do you not sometimes read the Bible and go, are the disciples just like the silliest people you've ever met? But do you not sometimes read it and think, I do that. I sometimes judge another person in worship and think, oh, there they are, being over the top again, laughing, dancing. Who do you think they are? Do we not sometimes judge each other's worship? Are we not sometimes, we don't do it out loud, my goodness. Most of us in the room are British. Like, like we're, we're not doing that out loud, but in our heads, in our hearts, do we not look sometimes and go, ugh, up again, reading something from the Bible, they don't know how to sit down and be quiet. Do, do we not sometimes behave like that? Do we not go home and say, well, I wasn't really that keen on the songs today, so I couldn't really be bothered to dance. Do we not behave like that ourselves? We wouldn't do it out loud. But in our hearts sometimes, we can demean acts of worship which demean the person and ultimately demean our saviour. So the disciples judge her. Jesus loves her heart. He loves her worship. He loves how it spills out. I want us to remember that in the kingdom, our acts are seen by their heart motives. So you remember the widow who put the coins in the offering? Everybody else is measuring out their tithe. She puts in the the two tiny coins. And Jesus says, I like her offering. I like her. Because he sees her heart. He sees that's all she's got. 
It's not as much as everybody else, but it's all she's got. And she puts it all in. The same as this woman pours it all out. He sees their hearts. One was a year's worth of wages. The other act was two pennies worth practically nothing. The language that he uses is the same in both. He likes both of their hearts. He likes it when we put a penny in, if a penny is all we've got. And he likes it when we put £40,000 in, if £40,000 is what we've got. He likes our hearts. He's never been interested in the material things that we amass, that we think are important. He likes our hearts. He likes our worship. He addresses the disciples in the story. You see, Jesus loves the poor. The disciples are suggesting that the money could have been better spent on the poor. And you wouldn't meet a better person for addressing the needs of the poor than Jesus Christ. You wouldn't meet a better God for saying, these people matter to me. The church is supposed to remember the poor. But he is not the head of a humanitarian aid organization. That is not who Jesus Christ is. His end game is worshippers. His end game is millions and millions of people standing before the throne singing, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain because by his blood, men and women are purchased for God. That's what he's about. But he's saying, don't preach the gospel to people who are starving. Feed them and then tell them the gospel. He's saying, don't preach to people who are literally dying. Get them some aid and then tell them what life is really all about. You see, the gospel, the main point of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died in our place for our sin so that we might stand before a holy God totally right, totally clean. We have to remember that. We have to make sure that all our endeavours never forget the reason why we still breathe, why we are still on the earth. We're still here, not because there are poor people out there and not because there are people who are dying. We are still here because God wants more to be saved. We are still here as a church because God wants all those people who are doing something else this morning to be sitting here, redeemed, restored, set free. We need to keep his main thing, our main thing. We do all the other projects, all the other stuff around it because it's all signs of us being saved. So it's not good enough for us to sit at home and eat our food and not care about the people who have no food. It's not, it's not good enough for us to sit at home with our kids getting all their immunizations and being all safe and all well and not care about the kids who are not. It's not good enough for us, but it's not good enough for us because we're saved. Because God loves us and chose us to demonstrate his kingdom on the earth. It isn't enough to feed people or to clothe people or to help them be well if they don't ultimately know Jesus Christ. The woman in the story knew that they would not have Jesus with them for much longer. So she, while she had him there, spilt it all out. The disciples still did not understand that they would not have him there for much longer. They were cross. They were annoyed at the money being spent and spilled out on a saviour. We have to remember that in our worship times. We're not wasting time when we come together to worship. We're spending it. 
and we're spending it on the one who has spent it all. So when we sing, when we dance, when we proclaim, when we read scriptures, what we are basically saying over and over and over again is thank you in the only ways we know how. We're saying you saved us, you set us free, therefore we will spill out all we have on you. All that we own is yours, all that we have is yours, every breath that we take, therefore we will spill it out. And we will each of us spill out in our own different ways, but we should spill out. We should not leave a worship time in this place rating the songs that we sang or the worship leaders that we had. Oh, I wasn't that keen on that song this week. It didn't really do it for me. Worship is not about us. It's about our saviour. And it's about us giving him the recognition and the worship and the love that he is due Because each of us stand before that God saved by grace. None of us have got any works or anything that we could bring that could buy our way into the presence of a holy God. He had to do that for us. So what to do with all of this? I don't know about you, I love being stirred by God, I love being inspired by God, but I want tomorrow to look different because I've met with him, because I've heard from him. I want my Monday mornings, my dealing with my kids, my dealing with my husband, my keeping of my home, my holiday time, my my all to look different because I've heard from him. It's why I read my Bible, because I want my life to look different because I'm daily encountering him. If you're struggling and you think to yourself, I don't feel like I'm becoming more like Jesus. I don't feel like my life is changing. I want to flag up. Maybe you're not reading your Bible and doing as you're told. I say to my boys all the time, if you listen to mummy and daddy and do the things that we say, you are likely to live a better life. So, you know, quite honestly, I say don't put things up your nose. And um, Levi said to me yesterday, he said, mummy, It was very clever that you said, don't put things up your nose. I said, I know, Levi. I, at times, can be very clever. If we're reading our word, if we're listening, if we're doing the things that Jesus asks us to do, our lives look better. It doesn't mean you've got more money. It doesn't mean you drive a better car, better house, all of that, yada, yada, yada. What it means is your internal heart, what you operate out of, looks better. Who you are with all the stuff you've got looks better. How you hold your money, what you do with your money, what you do with your time looks better when you say to Jesus, it's all yours. Tell me what to do with it. So over the summer, I want to suggest read, listen, or find a sermon series on the book of Mark or the book of Galatians. And I say those two because Mark is a gospel that is really useful to just read and absorb. If you are sitting there thinking, I have read the gospels a million times, find a sermon series. Find something that you think, well, I could get fresh revelation, new things out of it. Read it in a different translation. Listen to it. So I listen to my Bible all the time. I find it a really helpful, useful tool to have someone else read it to me. So listen to it. I said Mark and I said Galatians because Galatians is all about the gospel. 
Galatians is a book that, that basically tells us how we're saved, why we're saved, all the benefits of being saved. It's, it's a brilliant book. So pick a book and read it over the summer. Don't just read a trashy novel. Read the Bible too. I mean, I'm all about the trashy novels. I love a good trashy novel, but I like to read my Bible too. So read your Bible, listen to a sermon series. I would say if you're stuck, try Mark or Galatians. Women in the room, I want to encourage you to be those that spill out. And I want to ask you to make a choice today to be more like the woman in this story than the women that you see presented all around you as this is what is good as a woman. So I read a a monthly magazine where... Uh, I either, last year I had read, the year before I can't even remember what I had, this year I've got Woman and Home, which I think is pitched quite a bit older than I am, but it's good, I'm loving it, Um, and that tells you page after page after page what women should be like, most of it is utter trash, well not most of it, I would say all of it is utter trash to be honest. It tells you what women should look like, what women should aspire to. What I want to say to you as women of God, Jesus has a much better idea of what you should aspire to, what you should look like and who you should be like. As women, I think it is one of the most difficult battles goes on in your head. And you need to fight to maintain being a woman of God which is different to being a woman that culture says you should look like or society says you should look like. So I want to encourage us all to get really militant with reading scripture over our lives. So I use this sheet of paper which just says stuff that I am in Christ. So instead of taking on what everyone else says around me I should be like. I read this. I read this on a daily basis. Sometimes if I'm really battling, I will read it several times in the day. This is pinned up inside one of my cupboards in the kitchen. I open the door. Every time I see it, I read it out. That could be once a day, three times a day, as many times as it takes to get my head straight of who God has called me to be and why. So if you don't own something like this, I've got five copies there. You can come and take one of them. We have to get serious about training ourselves to believe what God says about us. You are bombarded with stuff all the time. We have to get good at at counteracting it and saying, no, what makes me a woman of God is this, this, and this. Not that self-tanning product, or that haircut, or that whatever. This is what makes me a woman. Worshippers, I want to encourage us, men and women alike, to be those that spill out, to be those that worship Jesus because he's worth it, that demonstrate that by raising our hands, by clapping, by kneeling, by singing, by reading scriptures, by bringing prophetic words, by sharing dreams, by dancing, by doing whatever it takes to say to Jesus, thank you and I love you. Whatever it takes and whatever you're like and however you like to be, I want to encourage us to be those people. If you like to kneel before God and just be quiet and adore him, do that. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing around you. 
Worry about what you are doing to be a worshipper of Jesus. Don't worry if you're dancing and you think, well, no one else is dancing. I mean, I am regularly dancing and no one else is dancing. A long time ago, I decided that would have to be fine. If I go to a party or I go to a wedding, or I am like the last person standing on the dance floor. I like love to dance. It was one of my biggest fears when I became a Christian because everybody seemed quite static. And I was like, man, I just love to dance. So I decided that I would. My kids love to dance. So we just do. I think you have to get very comfortable with, I'm worshipping my saviour here. So the approval that I'm after is his and no one else's. The one I want to adore, the one I want to please, the one I want to be with is him and no one else. And you kind of have to close your eyes and think, I am going all out for him. If you like to read scriptures, get yourself up the front, read them out, bless other people. Assume that when a scripture pops in your head, it is God speaking, not that you're just very clever and you remember scripture, but that God likes to give us a little occasional poke. Teach your kids how to do it. So in worship, we don't want to give the message of sit still, be quiet, when this is over, you can play. We want to give the message, this is our time as our clan to come together and worship God. Levi'll ask me sometimes, can I go and play? Can I go and do this? And I say, Levi, this is our time as a family to say thank you to God. So we're going to do that in whatever way you like. So you want to race a car up and down? Fine. You want to dance? Great. But we are going to stick together and we're going to tell him we love him. If you don't know Jesus, and I I say this all the time, for goodness sake, give your life to him. Like, don't be like those who spent loads of time with Jesus but didn't know him, who, who obviously went to church, read their Bibles, ticked all the boxes but actually didn't know him. Don't be like that. See, proximity to Jesus doesn't necessarily say we're saved. So some of the most pious, religious-looking people in the Bible were the ones who were not saved. Be saved. Give your life to him. Accept his death on the cross for your sin in your place. Get yourself right with a holy, beautiful, amazing God. Accept his blood sacrifice instead of yours. It's the best deal ever. Secure yourself a place in heaven and live the best life on earth you could possibly live. And then lastly, I think just the story has a warning for us. Not to judge by outward appearance, but to be a bit more like Jesus and look at people's hearts and look at people's motives The disciples and the teachers of the law in the story, they were offended by this woman's worship. And I think it it costs you a closeness with Jesus when you're offended by other people's love for Jesus. It, It costs us in our intimacy with Jesus. See, she had something that they didn't have. And I would love us to be those who are more like that woman who are, who are much more like those who've had encounters with Jesus, had our hearts given to him, and then those who just pour it out. 
And instead of judging each other, I would love us to applaud each other. Say, man, she loves to dance, brilliant. He loves to sing, brilliant. She loves prophesying, excellent. How can I learn? How can I grow? How can I get some of that? To honour the people around us that lead us in worship, to honour those who look after our kids, to honour those who set the scenes so that we can meet here, to applaud much more often than we are offended. And it's something that we just have to do with our own hearts. We just have to check ourselves over and over again. So let's be those that spill and not those who get offended. Let's be those who really know Jesus and not just know about him. Let's be those who look after the poor, but let's make sure our main thing is Jesus' main thing. Let's make sure it's the gospel. Let's make sure we are saved and we are bringing a message to lost, hurting, dying, broken people out there that actually rescues them too. Amen? Amen. Okay, guys, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to share bread and wine together. Um, I think we're going to probably get that started and then invite the kids in. If you have children, I would like you to explain to them what it is you are doing and why. So I think this is such an important symbol of who we are as a people. It's one of the things that Jesus said we're to do. We're to take bread, we're to take wine, and we're to remember that Jesus died in our place for our sin. We're to remember that his body was actually broken and that his blood was actually spilt for us. So we're going to start taking this. Then I'm going to invite the kids to come in. And if you have kids, explain it to them. I would like it, if at all possible, Alistair, could you come and just join me here? Is that right? If I give you one of these and a chunk of bread, can you share bread and wine with these guys over here? Is that all right? Yeah, is that all right? Thank you very much. And that as well, Alistair. Can you manage both or you want to come back? You'll come back. Uh, Mike, can I ask you to scoop some of these people up and do the same? I'd love us to remember Jesus if you want to pray. Yeah, Scoop, why don't, why don't a few of you come over here and a few of you go over there so that we... You just gather around where Mike is and Alistair will sort you out there.